Hi, everyone. This is Baruch Lurie, and this is the Baruch Lurie Podcast. Uh, thanks for listening. Ari, uh, always a pleasure to have you here, my producer. Uh, very recently, John Kerry went to the Middle East and basically told Bibi Netanyahu in so many words that he has a choice between having a true peace, uh, and that, that in his mind, John Kerry's mind, was to basically give up a tremendous amount of land without any concessions uh, in return to Israel, and uh, an apartheid state. And that was nice. <laughs> uh, what, a, what a bizarre statement to make. It was very reflective of his actual thinking. He bought into the mantra that the Palestinians are so desperately trying to uh, maintain, which is that Israel is some, somehow an apartheid state, never mind the extraordinary diversity and success of minorities in Israel. You, you want diversity? Go to Israel. You'll see tremendous amount of uh, Jews from all over the world, black, uh, some Asian now because there's a lot of Vietnamese um, who uh, blended into the Israeli community and now speak fluent Hebrew and are Jewish and everything else. And Ashkenazi Jews, Sephardic Jews, um, you name it. And, and people from, you know, a lot of Christians too. So, uh, and Muslims. And they're, they're very well incorporated into the life of Israel. It's wonderful. So somehow this is an apartheid state. It's just, it's so stupid, I don't even know where to begin. Um, and, and to his credit, John Kerry walked it back. And part of walking it back, he said, well, I thought that was a private conversation. You know, I, I, <laughs> that it's a private conversation means very little to me. I mean, I guess it means something if he actually says it publicly. But if he says it as a, as a private conversation, well, it concerns me even more because that, that reflects how he really believes. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, here's what I say publicly, but here's how I really feel. Um, it's kind of like President Obama um, saying, uh, being pro-Israel in, in the public stage, but in private, um, he gives uh, birthday parties to terrorists uh, who are against Israel. Uh, which is more revealing to you, right? I mean, obviously, the, the latter. So, um, or the clinging to guns and Bibles comment, or the necessary electricity prices will necessarily skyrocket comment. Yeah, that's right. Uh, all, yeah, know, all the, this these are the things. That, yeah, things. Oh, spread the wealth, right? Right. Uh, all these things are very revealing, and they're not gotcha moments. There, there are moments when where people are. It's not as if they're, you know, it's cute when he said fifty-seven states. Okay. I, you know, that's simply a mistake, and I, I know that he believes that there are 50 states. It's not an issue. Um, so that's, you know, we don't play that game. You and I don't play that game. Uh, and, and I think most conservatives don't play that game. But when you actually reveal what you truly believe in a private conversation, or I, it, it slips up, like, for example, I'll be more flexible after my election, after this nuisance uh, called uh, re-election, um, that's, that's when we can be flexible. Come on, man. Uh, this, is, this is real stuff. These are real leaders. You need to act like a real leader and be very careful with the things that you say um, and, and don't play ball with, with evil dictators and understand that they are evil dictators. Uh, but, uh, you know, John Kerry's comments in many ways was worse than what Obama has said with um, uh, Medvedev. Uh, about being flexible, because flexible, you could say, you know, what does that mean? It, it means uh, we could work together 
Um, he, maybe he was just shining him on. But when you say, describe Israel as, a, as an apartheid state, uh, this, this is problematic. This is, means that you actually have bought the, uh, you've drunk the, the Kool-Aid. Oh, bought the blood libel. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a slander. It's an unbelievable slander. That's, and you, you know what else is so funny about it? And uh, not ha-ha funny, but right. you know, r- r- Riley funny, ruefully funny, just uh, the way uh, facts are so misconstrued that this, there's this rumor, this myth, that if Israel doesn't act and accept a two-state solution, there's some sort of demographic bomb that Jews will be outnumbered down the line by Arabs, and uh, then they'll lose elections, and then that's where this pal- this apartheid state will come from. Uh, first of all, the, the the facts of the birth rates are totally wrong. Right. It's, it's a it's a slanderous lie in its in and of itself. And second of all, uh, actually, there's thirds of all in all this. There's three points. Second of all, if Israel is a democracy, who cares what the ethnic makeup of the citizens are? You know, That's right. people who live free will accept freedom or, or learn to love it and learn to nurture it based on the fact that freedom is a gift. And then third of all is the people who are constantly warning Israel about its own survival are always the most anti-Semitic people. It reminds me of Democrats who always tell Republicans what they need to do with their electoral politics for their own electoral survival. And it's usually the worst possible advice. You know, Democrats tell Republicans do this, that, the other thing. Raise taxes, stop cutting budgets, stop, stop throwing grandma over the cliff and pass amnesty, and then you'll win elections. Right, right. right? Okay, so, and so, it's the same for, right. for Jews. Do right, so, these things and you'll survive. Yeah, let, let, me, let me move on on this because um, th- there are some really critical points here. Um, one is um, that, that it's the, the apartheid comment. Um, it, it reminds us of what uh, Jimmy Carter has said in his book. In fact, it was the title of his book, um, The Idiot. Um, what was it? Uh, peace, not apartheid. Yeah, peace, not yeah. Israel. Peace, so, not apartheid. So here no, we, Palestine, peace, not apartheid. Oh, it's even better. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's already accepting Palestine as a nation and that Israel is the bad guy. Look, it's, a, it's, a, it's an upside-down world. It goes without saying we live in this upside-down world where uh, although it is good, is converted into evil. It's opposite land. You know, it's, it's like what we talk, you, you will eventually talk to your lovely little daughters about, you'll, you'll have a fun day where you'll just talk about how there's a, there's a place of, of called opposite land or opposite planet where everything is upside down. You know, the grownups act like children. The children are the grownups. They drive the, 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 the adults to, to work and um, it, it's a lot of fun, right? And the kids think it's a riot. But, the, but we live in, in our own opposite land in its own way, right? Where um, those who believe in God are, are the morons, right? I mean, when in fact the atheists are the, are the morons. Uh, those who um, love America are somehow, you know, racist and greedy. And America itself is racist and greedy and, and the worst country in the world. And all the other countries in the world are somehow better. Um, the, that capitalism is is an evil enterprise, never mind that it's the one thing that has improved the lives of everyone in the world, not just America, everyone in the world, manifold. So um, that's the op- opposite world. And we're dealing with Israel in that very same way. Israel is perceived somehow as the Goliath. Uh, how that has happened, uh, it's, a, it's a miracle of PR, a, a true miracle of PR. Uh, you know, I have to give them credit to the Arab side where they have successfully portrayed Israel, tiny Israel, as the Goliath in the world. Uh, 
and uh, that they, the Arabs, who are literally 400 times the land size, no, I'm sorry, 100 times the land size and 400 times the, the population versus Israel, that, that they somehow are the little David? <laughs> Excuse me? It's, it's really quite an amazing. So here we have um, uh, John Kerry going out there. It's very revealing. It's very concerning. Now, I have uh, some liberal friends that we had an exchange about uh, this very topic today. And to their credit, they said that John Kerry was uh, really in the wrong to say this. And, uh, of course, this is, this is nonsensical. Uh, and no doubt Obama um, you know, reined him in and told him to take that back. Um, you know, the same in the, way you reigned in Lewis Lerner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. No, wait, 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 wait. So, 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 like, let me get this straight. Obama, who is somebody who just instantly reacts wherever he can on, on issues that he feel feels are, are reasonably safe. He even chimed in in the recent Donald Sterling uh, scandal uh, within hours of it. Uh, and, and the Boston police situation and the Honduras Trayvon. and the Trayvon Martin thing, that he chimes in right away. Um, and so now we're led to believe that, you know, he, he's, he's very um, reserved and wise and patient in his analysis and that he has to take in John Kerry and say, that was a, a, tr a, a true mistake and we need to uh, walk this back, Mr. Kerry. Please get back in there, back in the game and do the right thing. No, no, my friend. I'm sure that uh, Kerry was speaking Obama's language. That I'm very confident about. But it's, it's okay if they want to believe that. I'm, I'm okay with that. But it ain't true. Uh, uh, did you and, hear and, what and, uh, Barbara Boxer said? Tell me. Barbara Boxer even credited. This is our Barbara Boxer, as liberal, as leftist as they get in the U.S. Senate from California, right? Even she felt threatened for the Jewish community that she is a member of and represents yeah. and criticized this. Now, when, when liberals or leftists of that magnitude say something, this is really going way too far. Right. Well, here, here's the exchange that I had with uh, my uh, liberal friend, um, and here's what uh, I had said. He agreed that, uh, that Obama had an epileptic fit, when he heard those statements attributed to him, or that's what he felt. I'm sure that Obama had an epileptic fit when he heard those statements attributed uh, to him, meaning to, uh, to Obama. And I responded, agreed uh, that Kerry, to his credit, however, acknowledged he said what he had said and that he apologized. That would be good enough for me for now. My friend responds, Wait, if Kerry, in fact, said that, then that is not good enough for me that he apologized. It means that in his heart, this is what he believes. And if that is the case, he should resign. I disagree with much of the Bibi Netanyahu policies, but I do not believe there is any racism involved whatsoever. To foster that belief is unbelievably simplistic and does a disservice to Israel and to the United States. And I respond, well... Here I was trying to be magnanimous, but I say, go, John, go. <laughs> um, okay, so that, that exchange is very revealing. This person, um, this friend of mine, is on his way to becoming a conservative. He's there already. He's just not voting that way yet. Right. The right. values are in place. The perceptions are in place. He's now seeing the world as it is. Right. Now, here's, here's the main point of this podcast, and what I want to... And, and, 
the John Kerry comment really kind of brings it to, to light, uh, which is why should we care about Israel, right? The so many of, thank goodness, the evangelical Christians, and for that matter, the Christian community at large, they not only support Israel, but they know about Israel deeply. They, they, they know more about Israel than they know about many of the states in America. And they know more about Israel than most Jews. Right. After all, they actually read the Bible. That's right. Probably they, both they, chapters. And they probably visited Israel a couple more times than most Jews. And, and God bless them for that. But why, why should we care as a, as a nation? Forget about Christians, generally speaking. Just As a nation, why should we care? Israel, I'll tell you why. Israel, first of all, is the only democracy out there. And it's a real democracy. It's a thriving democracy. It's not only um, important to have a, as a linchpin geo, geopolitically in there, but it's, it's an, in essence, the very beginning of our history. Israel, right? I mean... When you think about history, you can't help but your, have your mind race to the time of Moses, right? And to King David and King Solomon and, and Jacob and Joseph and Jesus, right? You, this is where it all began, folks. It should matter to you from a historical point of view. And it does matter to most of our, our listeners. It matters to them deeply. And God bless them for it. But uh, for many atheists and for many Americans who are Disconnected to faith altogether, Israel is uh, just, you know, another country, you know, somewhat more relevant than, let's say, uh, Zambia. Okay? Why should they bother with Israel? Um, never mind that Israel has create, created so much good in, in the ways of you know, values for the world, uh, in, in terms of inventions, in, in terms of medicine to the world, that they are... Uh, the world's first responder in most cases for disaster relief and such. Never mind that, right? Just the fact that there is historical significance to them, that they are the beginning of history as we know it, our common history. In essence, Israel belongs to all of us. And if, if you do not understand that Israel is a true force of good, then we're all in trouble. And Israel's survival uh, means our survival. In fact, it means, it's, it's a, it's a, as my dad said it, it's a clash of civilizations. If we are, are unconcerned about Israel's survival, we might as well be unconcerned about our own survival. Now, once sold a friend, it's not America that protects Israel. And it's not necessarily Israel that protects America, but if Israel is gone, America will be gone too. Yeah. Because without Israel's spiritual connection to Every good person in the world, no good person is safe, no good person will have a place that reflects the reason they have the values that they have. Right. We often talk about uh, America as, as the world's policeman, right? And, we, and you and I understand that there's value to that. I mean, we, we, may, we may not like the appellation uh, of world's policeman. That phrase seems a little awkward to us because um, you get the sense of somebody trying to control the, the entire country. I prefer, the, entire I, I prefer the world's riot cop. Okay, that's, that's, that's actually fair. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Uh, but, but when bad things happen in the world, the, the first thing, they, they don't say, uh, you know, what does, uh, what does Germany have to say about this? What does Sweden have to say about this? Nor do they say, what, do the, what does the United Nations have to say about this? No, no. They go and say, what does the White House have to say about this? And, and that's meaningful. And, and, 
we should like that. We should embrace that and uh, better us than Russia or China or India or, or any other country that we can think of present day. I wouldn't mind Canada or Australia, by the way, <laughs> but they're not, they're not stepping up to the plate. Um, we are a great country. But in the same way that America is a de facto policeman of the world, or riot police, as you like to say, uh, Israel, in many ways, is the moral compass for the world, right? I mean, think of something that, that is truly evil, upside down, from a moral point of view, um, a genocide that's happening. Um, you, you can bet that Israel is going to speak its piece about that. Um, where there is an affliction of, to a certain minority group, Israel is going to say something about that. We are partners, uh, Israel and America, in many different ways. But, with, and, but I, I embrace the, um, the Jewish and the Christian uh, interpretation of the Bible. Um, and maybe that's good enough, which is those who curse Israel will be cursed. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. And you know what? That's good enough. Good enough for me and good enough for all my Christian friends. I've noticed that. They say, look, you know, Bible's very clear on this. Uh, you, uh, you curse uh, Israel, bad things happen to you. So we're going to embrace that wonderful country. <laughs> and they're right. I mean, even if you don't see this and biblical, even if you don't see this biblical, you need to understand the historical significance of that reality. And there's not one exception. Yeah, and even if you do it for the wrong reasons, as many cynics and atheists do. The, you know, how many times have you heard, oh, that, those Christians, they're just blessing Israel because they're afraid they're going to go to hell. Well, who cares if they are? Isn't it more important that people do the right thing for whatever reason? And That's now true. you're questioning motivations? That's right. I, I, I agree. I, you know, the questioning motivations thing is very funny. Um, why are you, you know, helping the old lady across the street? You want your merit badge? Yeah, you know what? Get the <laughs> merit badge. Maybe I do. So what? Yeah. I helped her. Maybe I think it's going to give me a better place in heaven. You know what? Good enough. I don't care. I don't care. You can, say, you can be as cynical as you want and you say that we do everything that we do because we perceive that we're going to get something in return. That's not purely for the good of it. it you know, even if you don't think you're going to get money for it or an award for it, you think you're going to get something on the back end whether that's heaven or something else. And you know what? Fine. Go ahead and do that. Go ahead and do that. But, but you, the, the atheist, who claim to believe in logic, uh, you say that, that you're doing it because you, you think it's logical. Well, your logic basically says that I'm doing it because I would want somebody to do that for me if I were ever in need. Right? Well, then, then you are doing it for something in exchange. You're not so, um, what's the word, altruistic as you claim to be, Mr. Atheist. Hitler did everything he did based on logic. Right, he, he did. Everything was based upon logic, but we're not going to delve down into the atheist issue right now because um, we certainly we can have three podcasts on that. Um, on we already have. So. Oh, yeah, that's true. Good point. But Israel is, um, is, is, a, is a country that is a thriving nation, extremely successful, great minds are coming out of there, and not only that, but great minds are going to there. What about people who say, well, how can Israel be a good country? There are bad people there. I mean, it's so stupid because there are bad people everywhere. Well, there are plenty no, of bad people in America, too. Yeah. I mean, I don't even hear people say that. 
Um, I mean, because it's so just inane to hear that in the first place. Yeah. Guess what? There are some jails in Israel, too. Yeah. yeah. For precisely those kind of bad people. Right. And guess what? There were good people in the Soviet Union. There are a few good people in Iran, most likely. There are a few good people in North Korea. Does it mean those regimes are any less worse just because there are some good people running around in those countries? No, it, one has nothing to do with the other. Right. So let's let's continue on this this uh, podcast with a joke that I heard recently, and, and it will it'll delve into the next point that I want to make, which is um, the man you know uh, finds a uh, genie bottle, right, a, a, an Aladdin's type lamp, and he rubs it, and a genie comes out, and he says, "I will grant you one wish. Any wish you will, you want, it'll be yours." And uh, the man says, "Well, I, I wish for immortality." And the genie says, oh, shoot, I forgot to tell you, that's the one wish I cannot grant. I cannot give you immortality, anything else, anything. And so the man thinks for a while, and he says, okay, I wish that I die precisely at the moment that the Israelis and the Palestinians reach a full peace treaty. And then the genie says, damn, sneaky bastard. (laughs) Right? I mean, the whole point is, of course, the joke is that it'll never happen. It basically, it grants him immortality in a different way. Um, there will never be peace between the Arabs and Israelis, ever, unless and until one thing happens. What is that, you ask? That is when the Arabs, uh, whoever Israel is going to be dealing with, uh, become a fully democratic society. Fully. And when you, if you want to call that Jeffersonian, I don't care. But it has to be truly a democratic society. It could be democratic like, like Germany is now, like England is now, like France is now. I don't care. It could be a parliamentary system. But it's got to be democratic. And um, it, it can have the Muslim culture and everything else. But it ain't going to happen until that happens. Well, you say, that'll never happen. Kind of like the joke uh, just now, that it'll never happen. Yeah, that's right. And that's why I say it'll never happen, because you have to believe that the Palestinians will one day become a fully democratic nation. And uh, it won't happen. And, and the reason why I say that is very simple. I've said this in a podcast before, um, that the, you cannot, uh, the, the, the first order of business of any dictatorship is power and maintaining power. The first order of business of any democracy, by contrast, is prosperity. And delivering prosperity. And if you don't deliver prosperity, you get voted out. It's, that's really quite that simple. And war is not consistent with prosperity. War is something you do because you have to do. To gain power. Well, as a democracy, if you engage in war... No, I'm saying when you're I'll get, I'll get there. But if you're a democracy, you are very reluctant to go to war. Because it is inconsistent with prosperity. Right? People don't like war in a democracy. They don't embrace it. They don't want to go to war. They don't want to send their sons and daughters, usually their sons, to, to die. So uh, they'll be kicking and screaming, but sometimes, of course, you have to do it. You're under attack. You've got to go to war. Uh, World War II is a good example. Um, you know, Roosevelt had the toughest time getting Congress to go to war and declare war. Um, it was only when, when Germany declared war on America that, that he finally had the ability to say, okay, we, we declare war on you, too. So, um, so we're very slow to it, but, but like you just said, dictatorships, on the other hand, need, not only do they love war, they need war. 
War is essential to, to a dictator because they need power. And you can only maintain your power if you're constantly pointing to a scapegoat and saying there's an enemy just around the hill. That you can direct all of the national resources at. That's right. And you can blame all your problems on, right? So Israel, wow, what a fantastic scapegoat. When you think about it, right? Uh, all these countries, the Arab countries that surround Israel, they're miserable societies. They're just horrible societies. They don't produce anything. They have horrible unemployment. Uh, the family structure is as bizarre as we know with uh, four wives for a lot, of, a lot of the men. There's a lot of rape and killing. And yeah, within families and within clans, people it, are at each other's throats, it's, let alone within neighborhood cities and states. Right. And the government doesn't provide very much, uh, and, and the economies are terrible. So isn't it, there are already dictatorships, of course. That's part of the reason why the economy is so terrible, because they don't allow open markets. And so here is uh, tiny Israel. It's right around the hill. I mean, literally around the hill. And they can say, that's the country that's holding you back. Okay? And they're an evil Zionist empire. And, and not only that, but they're, they're, they're trying to colonize us. Never mind that there's no evidence of that. And Israel has never done that, never tried to do it. On the contrary, it's given up land as opposed to trying to gain more land, right? Um, but they, that, that's the mantra that they'll say. So... You have these two different platforms, two different uh, operating systems, if you want. It's kind of like the old days of Macs and PCs, right? You, you couldn't get them to work. You could get a floppy disk and shove one. You couldn't even, the floppy disk of one didn't even fit into the floppy disk uh, slot of the other. Uh, then eventually that happened, but you still couldn't, you know, get them Files to read. Files couldn't be read. They, they couldn't be read. interface. They're different operating systems. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one was necessarily better than the other, of course, but... Uh, democracy clearly is better than, than dictatorship. But you, you expect these systems to work together. They, they don't operate. You, you cannot... They're not compatible. To, That's it. To get the great word out of the computer world. Right. They They're, don't plug into each other right. and in a way that works together. Right. Expecting uh, a, a dictatorship to make a true peace with a democracy is like expecting the lion not to eat the gazelle. Okay, it's in the nature of the lion to eat gazelles. It's a meat eater. It goes out and hunts. The gazelle, by contrast, and I'm not trying to say that the, the analogy is a little bit poor because it suggests, because the gazelles are generally speaking weaker than lions, right? But from a living standpoint, uh, it is accurate. A gazelle has just as much of a right to life as a lion does. They're both animals in the animal kingdom. But the gazelle's nature is not to eat lions. It's It's designed to eat vegetables and, 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 oh, hold on, yeah. and, and grass. And, um, the, the, you know, if you go to a safari, like the Wild Animal Park, surprise, you'll see a fence between the lions and the gazelles. I wonder why. I, I think an analogy like that is, or the parable within that analogy is absolutely true. But to make it a, a more clear analogy, because no one would argue that Israel's military is as um, vulnerable to a lion as a gazelle is that's been locked in a pen with a lion. Sure. Compare a shark and a lion. Okay? Both eat things. But if you took the shark and put it on the Serengeti plane, within 10 minutes it would be dead. If you took a lion and put it in the middle of the ocean, in about 20 minutes, it would be dead. Right. Meaning they are not compatible. 
They both eat things, but they're not compatible. They can't make peace. There's no way the lion can visit the shark and stay for a weekend or vice versa. Right. It just does not work. Yeah, we have to, <clears throat> we basically have to transform them to become a democracy. And the best you can hope for at the end of the day, folks, is a cold peace. A well, pe what about the uh, oh, Arabs who live in Israel? Well, I'll get to that. Because that, that's really not, that's a, that's not really the same thing at all. Um, we're talking about country to country. So if and, the Palestinian right. territory became its own state, right. you're right. talking in the two-state solution of Kerry's apartheid right. example. Right. The the we've had examples. We have a peace with Egypt, right? But that's a cold peace. What we call a cold peace, meaning that there's really no trade between the countries. They're still, still very hostile toward Jews and Israelis in the media. They're extremely vicious. Um, you know, the Israelis in the, in the, the beginning of the, um, the peace, they would go down to visit uh, Cairo and such, and, and they were treated so poorly that they just, they just said, forget about it. And the Egyptians don't visit Israel. It's still, you know, the Zionist state. They still have a, uh, they feel like they have to, you know, embrace a nonviolent attitude toward Israel because... That's what their leader required of them. And even if the government is, has technically a peace deal with Israel, they still use the anti-Semitic and anti-Israel propaganda to stay in power. Right. Oh, yeah. So, so they just merely converted to anti-Jewish -Jew, uh, commentary, anti-Semitic uh, commentary. And they, they, they draw pictures with um, big noses and they... Yeah, the rat, the octopus, the right. bearded uh, rabbi they, they, controlling they, the earth, all yeah. those nasty stereotypes. Right. And they showcase uh, and made a movie out of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is this, this, uh, this forgery that was uh, you know, made a long time ago, in, I believe, in, in Germany or Russia. Tsarist Russia. Tsarist Russia, uh, suggesting you know, that these were diabolical plans by actual Jews that they had written it when, in fact, it was not. Um, it was a blood libel again. But that's another story. The point is that you'll never have a true democracy, a true, um, a true peace, unless the Palestinians, and for that matter, the Arabs, uh, any country that wants to have a true peace with Israel can only do it with actual democracy. And, and we, the whole media, the whole world is focusing on this, and they look at this problem as though somehow it was, it's, a, it's an even-steven sort of debate. You know, well, Israel's got to give up something, and the Arabs, well, they should give up something too. And it's, it's just madness. It's, no, it's not like that, folks. It's, it's like... When have they ever asked the Arabs to give something up, though? Well, the right to exist. You know, that's the, the recognition of the right to oh, exist. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Our, our very existence is, oh, is at okay. play. Yeah. So, really, you know, the, imagine how preposterous it would be to look at Nazi Germany, you know, during the Nazi days, and um, its neighbor, uh, France... And, uh, and they're slaughtering and they're imprisoning people and killing people and such like that. And just say, hey, you know, France, you gotta, you gotta, you know, step up here. Make some accommodations. Accommodations. And, uh, and, and, you, and, you know, Nazis have their interests and France, you have your interests. And you would say, well, that's absurd, Brooke. Of course, you know, that, that is, you know, truly it is absurd. Truly. And that's what we're doing here in the But Middle this is East. exactly what we're doing. And, and the bizarre thing is the amount of importance, though, in quotes, world puts on this problem. It's a small local dispute, relatively speaking, to the rest of the world. Right. Anywhere else in the world, yeah. let's just say um, the Chinese and the Uyghurs, or the, um, 
I'm very impressed it, it, that you know about that. So it's a poor <laughs> example, but the the, the, the divisions of Belfast between um, uh, Unionists and, and Catholics, um, it's relatively just local problems. Right. In the in the Irish situation of Northern Ireland, there's even some bombings involved. But well, it's it's not something that's going to spill out everywhere, unless right. other people start putting this uh, uh, unproportional importance on the whole issue, which really doesn't exist. The world puts on disproportional attention to this conflict, precisely because Israel is disproportional. To the rest of the world, and and because there are other things of higher priority that the world doesn't want to deal with, you know, but let me, other let me, let other let me, atrocity let me out there. It, let me repeat again: Israel, the world puts disproportional attention to Israel because Israel is disproportional in connection with the rest of the world. That is, them's the facts. That's the way it is. And Israel, like we said before. And why people should care about the world is be, uh, about Israel is because Israel, in many ways, is the center of the world for all three major faiths, and uh, the center of history for for so many different people. I mean, it's it's people really care about Israel, and Israel has a disproportionate um, uh, aspect uh, relationship to the rest of the world, and so it should be. Perhaps I mean we always talk about the bizarre. Um, disproportionate success of Jews in the world, right? In relation to their numbers, we are 0.02% of the population. But if you were to look at the Nobel Peace Prize winners and the Pulitzer Prize winners and all the inventors and such like that, you would think that about half the world is Jewish. If you were only to look at that as a, as a, um, a symbol of, of the world's population. But we, are, we, we succeed wildly in disproportion to our numbers, and we are also disproportionate in every, our influence, our, you know, our recognition in the world is wildly disproportionate. You ask anybody who doesn't know the actual facts about what the percentage of Jews are in the world, and they'll say, I'd say about 30%. Really, that, that, honestly, that if, you, if you went to Korea, for example, and you ask people, because they, they don't, I mean, a native Korean, and you were to say, how many Jews are there in the world, you know, outside of Asia, outside of China, Korea, Japan, and so on, um, they would say, oh, about 30, 40%. Because that's how much impact Jews seem to have, for better or for worse. Right. In countries that have no Jews, they answer that question. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So they're, they're, it's extremely but And Israel is exactly the same. So it's, we have to take the bad with the good, so to speak. Right? We, we love and are proud of the extraordinary success of Israel among the nations, right? I mean, what, I mean it's, it's phenomenal. Israel's success on the NASDAQ and the, and the Dow and, and its influence and, and patents in America. Uh, it, it, it exceeds all of the European patents and presence on the NASDAQ of all European nations, all put together. Not just, you know, greater than France and England or anything. All of them put together, Israel has more influence in the patent world and the NASDAQ and otherwise. So we're very proud of that. But you also have to take the bad with that, which is, as what you just said, well, it shouldn't be perceived as a regional, you know, clash. Well, yeah, but the reality is that we are enjoying the benefits of of, uh, this monumental influence. 
And we also have to suffer its burdens, too. Yeah, but what's not discussed is how easily the, this clash could be solved if those who keep saying they're working to solve the clash would stop throwing gasoline on the fire of the yeah, clash. Yeah, oh, yes. it, it, so absolutely right. I, I heard a wonderful plan once proposed by someone. He, he's opened up his talk, and you may have seen this guy talk. I forgot his name. It was a very interesting talk. He's opened up the talk by saying the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and wondering why you're not getting different results. So let's talk about this issue, Israel and the Palestinian Arabs. Right. And let's take a different approach. And he said, here are the raw numbers. The UN, I don't remember exactly what the number is, but he gave a number, something like the UN, through the UNRWA and the UNESCO and a couple other programs, gives the Palestinian Authority and the uh, Fatah and the Hamas groups that make up these, the overlay of the government structure of what is known as the Palestinian Authority and the Hamas government, X amount of dollars per year. Right. What if we ask ourselves, how much money is that per Palestinian person? How much is that per Palestinian family? And just gave it directly to the Palestinian families with the offer, you're going to move anywhere in the world you want. Right. If you're unhappy being here. Right, right. How many of them would take the money? I guarantee all of them. Right. And if you ask, well, what country will accept them? We say, well, if we're giving, and the number came to approximately $300,000 per person. Mm -hmm. If we gave each individual, and a family of four, when it comes to $1.2 million, $1.2 million of American currency, any country in the world would offer them citizenship for that tax base. Of course. And, and the problem would be solved overnight because the Palestinians would take it and other countries would accept them. Well, yeah, first of all, of course, you're 100% right. Uh, but there are so many other ways of avoiding the insanity, as you say. Um, by the way, it's kind of cute to note that you know, is part of the reason why Israel is so efficient and so dynamic and so responsive to change is because it must respond to change. It cannot afford to take risks that America would otherwise take. Take, for example, the fence. What, what, in Israel, it's called the security fence. This is a fence that basically keeps the bad guys out um, because, uh, and there's checkpoints. I mean, they can go in, but they just need to be screened, just like we have in an airport. All right. Uh, before the security fence, um, terrorists would walk into Israel all the time and just blow things up. And so, you know, Israel could have hoped that things would change and try different things and and they were trying the different things, which is, at that point, negotiating and negotiating and negotiating, and nothing was working. And very quickly, Israel said, you know what? Time to make a change. And they put it the security fence. Surprise! Yeah, no very, bombings. No more yeah. bombings. Um, so that was, that was easy. So think about other ways that, that uh, Israel, and for that matter, America, could deal with the Palestinian dictatorship. Why not say the following? And this is maybe even easier than what you propose. Look, Palestinians, we're giving you, I don't know how many billions a year. Let's say it's $2 billion just for fun. That's a lot of money. And say, look, you want us to continue giving the billions. That's fine. We'll do that. But we need to see some major changes in your infrastructure. Okay? You don't have to do it overnight, but we just need to see a major change. And here's a laundry list of, of things you can do. Ten things you can do. Any one of which... If you succeed in doing, then we release the money for this year. So among those lists could be rule of law, for example. 
Another thing uh, would be consistent democratic elections, right? Because we know that just having elections alone does not a democracy make, because after all, Hitler was voted into power, don't forget. Um, you could also have uh, you know, an education system that doesn't preach hate to the children, for example. You allow girls to actually have education, okay? <laughs> Uh, you allow different religions to to have their um, faith observed as well in the yeah. same place. No more weapons training summer camps for your boys. Exactly. I mean, any one of those things, you do it, you show it, you, you demonstrate that. We have inspectors for that year, and you maintain it for the next year. We're, here's $2 billion. Uh, it was done previously. It was called the Millennium Project, and it worked very well. And why we're not continuing to do it is a mystery to me. But we should definitely do that with the Palestinian Authority. But also... Uh, and I, I don't know if we agree on this or not. I have a big problem just with what's defined as Palestinian territory, the place on the map. For instance, the occupied territory was occupied by Jordan until 1967, not by Israel after 67. Right. So why isn't the Palestinian state, if you will, Jordan? I'm with you. Why why don't we yeah. why don't we bribe Jordan with these funds and say here Jordan you're going to let those people out of those refugee camps that are on the Jordanian well they border. call it refugee camps it's, those are whatever you want to call it. false characterization the false characterization but you patriate these citizens into Jordan and you get this money I, you yeah. know what that that would be great too, because Israel cannot give up the high ground the problem for Jordan is that Jordan is already seventy percent Palestinian as it is. They they are a minority. They don't want to have the Hashemites overrun by the there you go. Palestinians and wind up with King Abdullah's right. head on a stick. Right. So so the best thing for Jordan is to have. So Jordan, well, hold on. Well, the, the best, they, so Jordan want. has a question of peace or apartheid. That's that's exactly right. There you go. Uh, Jordan has every interest to make the um, the West Bank an Israeli problem, not a Jordanian problem. So that's what's really going on there. I mean, it's, it's funny. We talk about the West Bank, and if you, you know, this is, this is a podcast, so you can't see, but uh, it's, it's on the, the reason why they call it the West Bank. I mean, why is it called the West Bank when it's clearly on the east side of Israel? Yeah, because it's on the west side of the river Jordan. that separates Jordan and Israel. Right, exactly right. You, you consider the problem would be the East Bank, not right. the West Bank. There you go. <laughs> so that's, that's the kind of a little history lesson there. That's the, that's the problem. Look, uh, I think we've we solved uh, at least what the, in defining what the problem is. No, we solved it. If they would listen to us in this podcast, give the Palestinians that money, make them, allow them to move, it made it the uh, you know put this land in Jordan, build Las right. Vegas in the Jordanian desert for the Palestinians, let them run it. These problems are solved. <laughs> let, let me let me uh, put it a little bit more succinctly because it's there are times where you simply need to stand your ground. And suffer the blows, even in the process. What I loved about America during World War II is that there was, there was not one bit of mention of Roosevelt or anyone in America uh, saying maybe we should negotiate with the Nazis or maybe we should negotiate with the Japanese. It was clear as day that the only resolution was full and unconditional surrender. It didn't enter their mind to say, well, maybe we should talk about you know, giving them something. No, that was not even a moment there. It was the classic line, oh, here's the deal. I hit you, you hit the ground. That's right. Right. Uh, I win, you lose. So, as Ronald Reagan famously said, uh, here's what, maybe we need a little bit of that when it comes to our American attitude toward the Arab-Israeli conflict. And simply to say, look, Palestinians, you're a mess. 
Okay, you you are monsters. What you are doing, blowing up Israelis and such, we're not gonna, that dog don't hunt with us. Okay, we're, we're victims of terrorism too. We didn't like it then, and we don't like it now. We don't like it when you do to our allies. So tell you what, um, you start embracing democracy, we'll embrace you too, right back. But until that day, sayonara. And we're giving our money only to Israel. And uh, good luck, okay? Now get your act together. Otherwise, we're not going to uh, enable you and your dictator, the dictatorship rules. All right, folks, it's been a pleasure talking to you. This is Barack Lurie, and this has been the Barack Lurie Podcast. Talk to you next week. Carries us on.